This Talking Flutes podcast is kindly sponsored by Trevor James Flutes, making life sound beautiful. You can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes, Trevor James Flutes on Facebook, and at trevorjamesflutes.com. Hello and welcome this week to Talking Flutes Extra. I'm Jean-Paul Wright. As you can probably hear from the background noise, I'm not recording this in our usual quiet setting, but I'm off into London to meet a multi-instrumentalist, composer and recording artist. Before I catch the train in, I'd like to thank you again for continuing to be the best listeners and sending in your comments on our podcasts along with questions and ideas for Claire and I to cover in future pods. I'm currently collating these and will be covering them all soon. Also, whilst this podcast is popular, well, I suppose the only way you can measure popular is in downloads. And before I left this morning, 3,328 of you have already downloaded last week's podcast with the fabulous Ariana Picknatch. So please, can you continue to like rate and comment on Talking Flutes on the podcast provider you're listening to this on. You see, whilst we're available on most providers, we'd love to get the reach of these even further out and into the eye line or ear line to new flute playing podcast listeners when they do their online research. So, oh dear dear, and before I get out of puff, walking and talking as this hill I'm going up is not levelling out yet, I am off into London to see Theo Travis. Theo is a British flute player, saxophonist and composer. He's best known for being a member of Soft Machine, which he joined in 2006 whilst the group was still using the legacy suffix, Soft Machine Legacy. Theo has a huge solo performing and composing catalogue and can be found happily in many musical genres such as progressive rock, jazz and ambient music. Whilst I worked my way into London on the train and then tube to a lovely and busy cafe, let's have a quick listen. Oh dear dear, I really do need to get fit again. Let's have a quick listen to a little of the beautiful Clear Mind, composed and performed on alto flute by Theo. Right, I can see the top of the hill now. Here we go. These eggs are nice, aren't they? Yeah, really nice. It's really nice. 
I mean, we're not out of COVID. We're still, we're still very much in it. Um, it's a very funny situation. Well, not funny, but I find it curious because on one hand, as I say, we just toured Europe and we had to do an antigen test before and you have to get things registered and you have to apply for quarantine forms here and there's different forms for each country. When we were abroad, you have to do a passenger locator form, which is quite involved to get back, and mask, etc. So there's a lot of um, precautions. But then often when you're out and about in a cafe or in London, on the, you know, not, not necessarily on the tube, but in town, everyone's just walking about, carrying on as if, as if there was nothing. So, I mean, Britain's not in a good position compared to other countries, but it's a very, very mixed messages as to whether we're in a state of something you know, really dangerous or whether there's a bad flu going around. So I don't know, I mean, I, I follow the rules and are on the side of caution and there's still hundreds of people dying and lots of people getting ill. But it's, um, it's just, this, this stage is, I think, unknown and people kind of deal with it different ways. And the, the music, uh, sort of music field, music business, as you say, touring is opening up, even as we're going into winter with, again, this point of not knowing, but yet they're quite happily opening up London, you know, the Ronnie Scott's yeah. is still open, is open and I went just to see, um, I went to see a concert at the London Palladium about a month ago, three weeks ago. Steve Hackett, the guitarist from Genesis, him and his band have been touring. They did um, 30 dates around Britain. Theatres, pretty full, doing um, you know, his music, but also the Genesis Seconds Out uh, set. The Palladium was full. Um, people had a lot, of, largely people wearing masks, actually. But I don't know if they were in other venues, but the band, they didn't do meet and greets. So they didn't meet as many people to, to be safe. But they did a 30-day British tour of theatres and they completed it and it went very well. So it's you think, well how can you do, how can you do that if you're you know like a you know well, play, the plate is massive, it's really big. Yeah. I went to see um, Mary Poppins just after it reopened. Very joyful. Right. Two and a half hours or three hours, however much it looked on it, yeah. hours. But no one was wearing masks because it was too hot in there. Right, right. Uh, and then I went to see Come From Away. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is wonderful. Oh, yeah. um, simplistic, but absolutely wonderful. And again, yeah. everyone had taken mask off because it was just too hot. Right, that's interesting. I went to the Wigmore Hall for a great concert, which is, you know, it's not big but everyone's sitting close together. But everyone did wear masks throughout the concert and kept them on. Um, performers did, some places performers do, but the, no, the performers played as normal. Audience pretty well all did wear masks, actually. And um, it was fine, it was just, I think people are very appreciative of live music because they, they've been um, deprived of it for a long time both musicians going out and playing to people, it's like, wow, this is amazing. And I think audiences going to hear live music, because yes, we all get infinite, you know, YouTube and Spotify and all the online access to music. But seeing people in front of you doing it, 
is is incredible. Um, you know, when they're really skilled performers, it's uh, it's life affirming. I mean, it really is a li a good live performance. You know, by great musicians, it's life perform life affirming, and uh, I think that's exciting. And I think audiences are reminded of that, and performers are just enjoying to be doing it. I mean, I, I spoke to you earlier um, about the first time you played live after, I think, well, we've had three lockdowns. Um, the first time you played live to an audience after about 18 months. What was that feeling? I, mean, I did ask you whether you were nervous, but it wasn't sort of nervous, nervous, because you've been in the business long enough to sort of think that nervous, nervousness is really just another form of excitement. Um, but... What was that feeling? Um, I think the first live performance I did after a long period of time in front of an audience was when Soft Machine played at Ronnie Scott's last December. We did a, we did a live stream for the Cambridge Jazz Festival in November, which was great to play, but when a number finished, there was silence. You yeah. kind of look at the camera and you know, tumbleweed and <laughs> some, you know, John would say something on the mic. So it was great to perform, but it wasn't, it was just unusual. Whereas when we played Ronnie Scott's, it was a live stream, but there was an audience there. And it, it felt great for various reasons. One, because it was performing in front of an audience again. Uh, it was a live stream. Um, um, but because um, we, we'd done a gig like a few weeks before, it, it was a bit more familiar than if it had been the first gig forever. Um, and Ronnie Scott's is an amazing venue and place. And, uh, it's, you know, it's a thrill to play there anyway. So, so the first gig in front of the live audience was really good. Really, really good. For, those who've, for those of you, obviously, who haven't had the joy and pleasure of visiting a gig at Ronnie Scott's, uh, I'll just... I've never played there, but I've been to loads and loads of gigs. It's a traditional jazz venue. They do deviate beyond jazz, but they don't go to smooth jazz, because smooth jazz is down no. the road at Pizza Express Jazz Club. Sometimes, yeah. Um, but the thing with Ronnie Scott, it's a very intimate venue in the centre of Soho, and you go up some steps after an old-fashioned cloakroom, and you see all these legends of jazz, the pictures are on the wall. And then you walk into this very dark environment where there's a stage right in front of you and all the seats and tables are, because you can eat at the same time, are sort of piled up, not piled up, but they're tiered up. So it is such an intimate venue that I think a lot of people would find that, actually, well, the people that play at Ronnie's wouldn't because they're obviously world-established musicians. But for someone that isn't necessarily that established, playing at Ronnie's and all the great jazz legends have played there, would be quite intimidating because of the closeness of the people. Yeah, no, I can imagine that. Um, there's something, there is something special about playing in a venue, maybe particularly a small venue, that has an amazing history. Um, because you kind of, you're aware of it when you play, you're on the same stage that these people have been on. And yes, when you see the whites of people's eyes, it, it can be a little bit more nerve-wracking than playing in a stadium of 10, 15,000 because it's kind of unreal and you don't really see people, you just see this huge space. 
so you're really playing on the stage and it's you have a different response because as I say you don't see the whites of people's eyes in a stadium it's just a huge place and you have to be very you know just take care of business and do your thing and check your monitors and check your playing and I mean you you get the roar of a big crowd but it's it's very different it's very different I mean I like them both but it's very different so you've gone from you know if we take the two extremes you've gone from playing in stadiums with large crowds to intimate venues and when I say an intimate venue I'll to be honest it's the other way around playing from tiny venues with three people just saying I think will be the order not the other way around but yeah yeah and I will go back to a gig you did years ago which still I find to this day just such a sort of a stunning sort of performance when you we were, I think you were at Coventry Cathedral yeah. and it was just you and Steve Robert, Fripp. Robert Fripp yeah so just two musicians and the ability of two musicians guitarists and you on the flute working with the ambient surroundings and the magic that that created that uh, it, it's one of those magical things that you you sort of couldn't recreate that was um that performance in may 2009 i think it was would would be probably in my top three top five performances ever it was an incredible experience because of the nature of the music we there was the two of us and there was the amazing coventry cathedral sir basil spence believe didn't it um designed it so there were kind of three performers there was the two of us in the space and the nature of the music which was ambient and improvised largely um, we played the space, we, we kind of, because we were playing spontaneously, every moment would be listening and responding and adjusting, you couldn't but help be affected by the space. The sound of the space, the feeling of the space, the fact that it was a cathedral. Um, so we'd have kind of areas, sound areas, uh, key areas. So each, there were distinct um, sort of themes or harmonic areas for each piece. A few of them even had some melodic content, which was pre-planned. Some were completely improvised. And we did this gig for Coventry Jazz Festival, actually. And I remember at the end of the gig, Robert looked at me and kind of nodded. In fact, he, he turned back to the altar first because there's a huge stained glass window. He turned back and kind of nodded to that. Then he nodded to me and then he kind of walked off. And I just thought, what the hell just happened? <laughs> because it, the music felt like it was beyond both, what both of us. Something had, It's one of those moments where something happens beyond what you've prepared or what you think you're doing. And we came off stage and Robert said, that's the next album. Um, and so I, I mixed the album, or got a friend to mix it and produced it. And incredibly, um, what we played is, is what it is. So usually the norm with a live album is that you, you do the performance and then you go into the studio 
and you clean things up and you tidy things up and maybe if one of the tracks isn't great you leave something off and you maybe edit a few things. We honestly didn't. What we played, note for note, is what was there. And this was um, a complicated technological setup because, yes, I was playing mainly alto flute, um, my brother James' alto flute, and a bit of soprano sax, and Robert had his guitar on setups, but it was, you know, there were pedals and loops galore. Everything was live, but there was a lot of sound process processing going on. So there are many opportunities for things to go wrong. Either technically wrong or musically. If you take risks when you play, the nature of the game is that it's a risk. Something might not work, something might work. But for, for whatever reason, it all seemed to work and it was recorded well. And um, yeah, I sort of look back and thinking, how on earth, what happened? I'm very uh, you know, proud and happy in, in how that happened and what came out. In fact, I believe Tone Float Records in the Netherlands are planning on doing a, a double vinyl uh, reissue of that. It was originally just CD. I think it's downloaded as well, but I think, all being well, it might be a vinyl edition of that. Is it up on Spotify? Um, I don't think it's on Spotify. Robert's not keen on Spotify. Actually, I'm not keen on Spotify. Underst understandably, because you yeah. have six billion downloads and you earn about 3p yeah. or something. I got no time for Spotify. No. I mean, I have things on Spotify and that's fine, but I, it's not going to take up any of my time or attention. And I certainly don't earn anything from it. So. What was interesting is you said but you played the space. Now, for musicians of all age, playing the space is almost crucial. It's a critical factor in a performance because the bigger the space, the more you have to understand what's bouncing back, what's coming back and how you can sort of manipulate your sound. Um, I agree. The, the interesting thing, in a way, is that most or much, certainly the majority of live performance is of music by people where they know what they're going to play. They have, whether it's uh, written and arranged pieces of music or, you know, a band, they've got their set, they've got their songs, they play their songs, they play their set, they play their music. So if you had, say, um, you know, a loudish rock band and you're, you have a gig in a church, you're not going to completely change your set. You're going to do your thing and you're going to hope the sound man can make it work in the setting, which can be difficult. I mean, a, you know, a good sound man will be able to do it. Or you might say, we're a rock band, it's not suitable for that space. But if you have a... So sometimes it's matching the, matching the music to the space. So for example, a place like Ronnie Scott's, works really well with the sort of jazz that plays at Ronnie Scott's. If you had a sort of ambient duo, it wouldn't really work at Ronnie Scott's because it's a nightclub, it's a club, people want excitement, they want action. If you play in a church or a cathedral, people don't want excitement and action and jumping up and down. It's a, it's a cathedral, it's a sacred space and it puts you in a certain headspace. So to start, I think it's good to have a venue that suits the music you're gonna do. But then after that, looking at the Coventry Cathedral concert, if the music is suitable and then it's improvised or very adaptable, then you really get an opportunity to modify it and go a different way according to what you're hearing. Because it's not like, here's a set song, here's the verse, chorus, middle eight, here's the click track, this is what we do, I hope it's going to work. It's like, no, let's listen, let's respond. So um, it's, it can be partly planning with Music Works in the Space, but certain musics have a lot more flexibility 
in terms of how much improvised content there is. And this you can't others. teach, can you? This is your, you've learnt this over the years through experience. Yes, I think so. I think, yeah. I mean, you could say it in a, in a classroom, but it wouldn't mean anything unless you tried it or played some music in an unsuitable venue or played some music in an incredibly suitable venue and you got the buzz that everything was coming together because of all the elements. Um, so it's really stuff learnt out in the field. Do you think, think a lot of musicians, certainly those that are starting up, that they don't chunk it down into all these elements, they just sort of play an instrument and don't consider the whole, because the whole of a good performance is greater than the sum of its parts, isn't it? Yes, you're right. But it's interesting because in a way I've, I've learnt what I've learnt because I would have had lots of enthusiasm and just got out there and done things. And, and you find that some things do work and some things don't work and some things work particularly well. So this isn't stuff that I've learnt from a YouTube instructing <laughs> manual or from, <laughs> from a masterclass. It's probably learnt because I've gone out and done lots of things. Uh, it's kind of knowledge with hindsight, really. I mean, I can pass it on and I can talk about it like this, but it, it's learned from, from doing it and hindsight and allows you just having enthusiasm and getting involved and wanting to... I mean, I've done plenty of things that haven't worked so well, but, <laughs> but you just kind of go, okay, and you move, didn't work so well, and you move on, and the things that do work well, you try and do more of that and not of the ones that don't work well. Do you analyse after a performance or do you just let it go? The, con the actual music of the concert? No, because that's all done, isn't it? That's gone. Well, it's interesting because I've, I've watched some of these, there's some really interesting Pat Metheny videos when he, one, when he talks to the American Neurological Society about music and neurology, but another one where he just talks about performance. And he was saying that after each of his concerts, he writes 10 pages of notes through the whole thing and then you know goes through it himself and with others but so that was real specific analysis as to the music um i i certainly don't do anything like that but you mull, you mull it over and a good night you know a, a great night of music you you really remember it and you remember why it worked and how it worked and you want more of that sort of thing. So it is something I would think about and um, consider and be aware of and you know, feed, it, feed it into the pot of things to It's the best hit, isn't it? It's, it's the best hit. Better than, better than three double espressos. It's the best sort of... Yeah, no, it's, it's, you know, it's a wonderful thing. Live, you know, live music, live performance and certain nights that, that when it all comes together, you know, it really is special. Let's move on to this album that you've just put in front of me. Theo Travis, Songs from the Apricot Tree. There's two things I want to speak about here. Firstly, unusually for you, your album cover <laughs> is of you. And this is very unlike you because you're normally really creative on album covers. <laughs> so let's do the album cover first before we look at the whole album. It is, uh, you're right, you're absolutely right. Um, so the thought process behind that was, well, I've done, what, 11, 12 solo albums and a lot of sort of band albums collaboratively. 
and I'm either not on the cover or I'm kind of in a landscape where the landscape's the feature, not yeah. me. And there's a lot of album covers where, which I of albums I have, and the artist is on the front, and I sometimes think it's as interesting as the clever artist stuff because if it's an artist I like and I'm interested, you know, it comes from them. Mm -hmm. It comes from them, and they're the person. And so this was a very much a kind of home. Uh, it was this kind of small, small project under the radar, sort of cottage industry. It was on my own label, and I recorded everything and uh, put it all together, produced etc. So I just thought. Uh, sorry, and the other the other reason was um, I'm holding the Duduk. So this album features the Armenian Duduk. Yeah. And so I thought it was important to have a picture of what this thing is because most people have never heard of it. So I thought, well, okay, I'll put together uh, having an album. Uh, in fact, there's an album by someone uh, I'm a fan of, Roddy Frame. He's a guitarist, singer, songwriter from the band Aztec Camera. He did an album called Western Skies, and on the front is a picture of him with a white background. So, <laughs> so I kind of took that as a and it's a good sort photo. Who took it? You can tell me it from an iPhone. No, no, that's a wonderful uh, Ukrainian photographer called Maria Korneva. Well, I found on the internet, and she's in London. She did the last. Uh, she did some soft machine photos, and uh, she was great and lovely and very reasonable. And so I asked her to if she would do this, and she said yes. So I went to her studio, and we took a selection of photos with me and the Duduk, and chose one for the cover. So simple, but different. I mean, the album is a kind of feature for my Duduk play, or the Duduk and me, and that's what it was about. It was, a, it was a kind of lockdown project, it was a good goal for me to learn this instrument or work on this instrument, and so the album is really where I've got to in different contexts, so it seems vaguely suitable to do an album cover like that. But yes, it is not what I normally do, but it's all right. So here's an old, a whole album on the Duduk, or if you do have other things on there. Yes, so... Um, where is it? Oh, there it is. So the, every track on the album features me on the Duduk. So the Duduk is kind of like the lead voice on every track. Um, some tracks are solo Duduk, or Duduk with a simple drone, a kind of meditative drone. Some, uh, I do one jazz standard, actually with John Etheridge on guitar. Quite a few of them are sort of different types of productions, so ones with a string quartet. Um, a few are kind of um, sort of electronic backings. Um, have you, sorry, have you taken the Duduk out of its usual environment? Yes, completely, yes. <laughs> oh, completely, yeah. I mean, it's a traditional Armenian instrument yeah. and there's a big, big uh, tradition of wonderful traditional Armenian music on the Duduk. So playing a jazz standard, playing a variety of contemporary music is, is not the norm. I mean, I'm sure people have done it, but um, my model was, I mean, I, the sound of the Duduk is something very special, but as artistically, I was thinking more kind of uh, following the um, path of John Hassel, who's an American sort of avant-garde, avant-garde, I don't know, American trumpeter who had his own way of playing um, and his own type of music that he played on, but he also collaborated with musicians like 
David Sylvian and Talking Heads. Um, so playing an instrument in an unusual way, in unusual contexts, in a very individual way, but something that had a kind of spiritual core in a way to what he did, quite a lot of depth to it. So that's kind of where I wanted to go with it. Um, so there's no traditional, there's a couple of kind of old type melodies and things on the album, but it's not a traditional, I mean, I'm not Armenian in the slightest and, you know, my playing is not, I know uh, some great um, Armenian duduk players and it's not who I am and it's not what I do and it's not what I try to do, so I'm doing what I do. Um, but using this uh, incredible sound, um, which is the duduk. Songs from the apple tree. Apricot tree. A duduk Sorry. is a single piece of wood which comes from an apricot tree. I haven't got my glasses on. Ah, so okay. I, yeah, it's, it, it's made of a single piece of wood that, that is, comes from the apricot tree. So that's why I... It's kind of a mixture of that and the songs from the big chair, the Tears for Fears album that I thought was a kind of nice title idea. Can we play a little bit of one track? Please do. Which yes. one? Um, I would say, why not try number two, Love and Morning, which is the duduk with the string quartet. Beautiful. Here we go. Thank you. 
gorgeous, gorgeous as they would gorgeous. say in London. Gorgeous. It was a, it was a very good lockdown project because having the album to do and recording it all at home and wanting to be good enough to put it on an album is like okay, there's my goal. Get good, do something interesting with it, record some stuff. I mean, I've also had a, a library music album that's just come yeah. out this week called Desert Stalker with this guy Paul Russell credited on that one which is it's more kind of like terror in Baghdad uh, oh really that's it. yeah it's like um, it's, it's you know tension it's a bit like James Bond goes to Cairo and there's a tense moment a sort of it's not that but it's the with, with contemporary beats he's a really good electronic producer so that's just come out so that goes straight into music production world. You've done a lot of library albums, haven't you? I have done quite a lot, actually, yeah. All, well, all different for me. 10, 10, 11 or something. Um, yeah, well, I, the fun thing is you jump onto different instruments. So I've done at least two or three Duduk ones. Uh, lots with the alto flute, the, all the flute yeah. loops, which has started it all off for me. Um, two or three of those. But then I also have played a bit of guitar and a bit of piano. I had a piano track that was being played a lot. Got an Andean wood flute that was a successful track. Um, in fact, I've just bought um, a, low, a low whistle, the Irish low whistle, um, and uh, other wood flutes and some saxophones, different saxophones, piano. Yeah, it's, you can just jump into different worlds, and then you don't have to sort of be the artist and promote it and travel and tour and all that. You just you just be creative, write music. Set it, sort of put it in, set it off into the world to do its thing and hopefully generate some money and be played on telly and things and then move on to another project so I like it a lot. <laughs> so you're quite happy just to have a nucleus of a project, get it done and then that then can sign, that's historical and then you move on. Are you very yeah. much a forward person rather than sort of hanging on good yeah, things? Yeah well it's, fast? it's different, I mean I like them both. So, so for instance either Double Talk or Soft Machine or my band, you, you make music and generally go out and play it live and you sell the albums as you play it live and you know the playing live is great and then you kind of want to develop and so maybe you work towards new stuff and you work towards recording that and you know that's what being a live recording touring artist is. But this, this is different in that you write the music, record it once you deliver it to the you know, production music library that then works it, you say goodbye and you don't have to, you don't have to promote it, you don't play it live, you never play it again. And that's fine because it's quite interesting. So the create, I mean, and I've heard people talk about this before. The creative process is all about the creative process in making the piece of art or music. And it's kind of that, that's where the excitement is and then once it's out in the world many many artists never listen to their own records I don't unless I need most people I don't think listen to their own records Stephen Isilis who's a very famous classical cellist wonderful classical cellist has said and I'm pretty sure this is it what he said word for word forgive me if it's wrong Listening to your own albums is like smelling your own shit. But don't do it. It's not what it's about. It's about the creative process of making it. And that moment of creation, and then you make it, and then you move on. And make something new, and be creative. Do you find that that's less 
ego-driven because you're not listening back. Look how big I am. Look how good I am. Because actors, actors, actresses do that. They don't like looking at themselves, do they? I don't know. I, I don't. I, I don't know. This is all just I know it's conjecture. But I mean, I guess that people that do dwell a lot on their past stuff is often business-driven yeah. rather than artistically driven. So if you've got, you know, say an album that does well and you're promoting it and people are responding it and you're getting, you know, other good sales or good reviews or whatever and people are interested in you and putting, you know, events with you on or whatever and you're going, yes, 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 this thing. That's about the business. That's about, you know, career and making money out of it. It's not you're going back and listening to the album because you're interested in the album. I think that's how that works. Mm. Um, I mean, I recently, I recently joined an online songwriting club uh, with some amazing musicians and singers. Absolutely wonderful. Uh, and the project and the process is we meet once a week online, present songs on a theme, and then at the end of the meeting, uh, a theme is suggested for the following week, and we all go away and we write a song that, on that theme and then we present it the next week. So you have to write and record a song in a week. Uh, so it's uh, deadline driven and it can be quite challenging and it can be outside your comfort zone. But the creative juices don't half get flowing and I find it really exciting and thrilling just trying to write this song and present it to others you know, who you know, are really... Uh, established and uh, extremely good uh, musicians and singers. Can you write to deadlines then? Creatively Well, I write. generally don't. I, I mean, that's the other thing. Generally, if I write music, or when I write music, there's no deadline. You know, it's like it can take weeks, it can take months, sometimes even years, but certainly weeks and months to finish it. This you have basically five days, which I've never done before. <laughs> Fortunately, it goes to, we play the stuff to the group and we talk about it and that's as far as it goes. So it's not like it's being released or anything. But the interesting thing is, um, so it's not going out into the world, it's just private within the group. But the excitement of writing it and presenting it is, 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 is well, it's very exciting and it, I find it, you know, it's thrilling almost as, as, you know, writing and recording something that's then released and... Because it's that creative process. I'm, I'm constantly thinking in my head, what shall I do? What shall I do? What? And these are songs, so what are the lyrics? How will it work? How will this section work? What instrumentation shall I do? What orchestration? So it's, it's, it's purely the creative process and the moment of creation and getting it together very quickly. But the deadline is, is unusual for me. I've, I've not really done that. Um, and it's, it's quite exciting, but certainly quite challenging to do things that fast. But, it's, but purely the creative process is, um, is what that is all about, and, and making stuff happen very quickly. And you're learning from others as well, I'm learning you? hugely from others. I mean, they're really good. I mean, I'm not a singer, and the majority of the people in this group are like seriously good singers. And the ones that aren't singers are seriously good guitarists and bass players and producers so the standard of uh, songs that they come up with is really high so I don't want to make a fool of myself <laughs> and what happens to any gems that are well pop up anything that so the person who's if someone's presented a gem 
so uh, then they can use the song for whatever mm. they like. So we're all learning a lot by doing it. So I've learned a lot from the songs I've written for it. Um, some of them I might take away and do something with in another context, but you know, the, the work has been done to create this thing and if there's useful things to take away, then I can take them away. There's no problem with that. Future collaborations. Future collaborations, future projects, future compositions. You know, the fact that you've sweated a bit to, to get something out there in the first place is it's just useful, really. The world has changed in the last two years in many ways, not only through the sad loss of so many people and the, the suffering that musicians and people in the arts have experienced without being able to perform and without having an income stream. This probably wouldn't have happened, this online, as you say, no. course, uh, sort of group get-together that you have. No. If we hadn't have had this. No. It's a whole new world. I mean, I, um, the beginning of lockdown, I did a few of the old lockdown pub quizzes, lockdown friends quizzes. Well, they were okay, they were quite fun. But I got a bit zoomed out with those yeah. after a while. Um, and... I've done an online performance, which was okay. Um, lots of online teaching. But as a group, this was probably the first one that I've really been excited about. And I think it's a combination of what the people and the fact that it's a group that gets together. I mean, I know them. They're not friends, but I know them. I knew them before, some of them. But I guess it's... I go away and do the work then and, and it's kind of inspired me enough to do that and then I come and present, we each come and present our songs. Um, but as a format, it just works really well. Has it, has it any of the, anything that you, or being part of this group, is it beginning to change you or mould you in a different direction because of the different influences you're getting, the yeah, different well, thought patterns? I, in a way, I mean the response of people, uh, when you play the, present your things, the response is important and kind of affects you. The fact that I have been writing for deadlines, the fact that I've written anything in five days with a, you know, and had a finished demo is um, new for me. So the whole thing is, yeah, it's been useful, it's been interesting and has certainly changed my way of working. In fact, in terms of writing songs, it's changed my way of writing songs. Um, so, yes. Theo. I think we'd better end it here and get another coffee. <laughs> Theotravis.com is where you're going to find everything you need to know about Theo. Theo is not only a brilliant flute player, and that's where he started his life, but he's also a phenomenal sax player, and as you probably heard, he plays probably <laughs> everything else. So you can get as much information as you want on Theotravis.com. On Instagram, it's TheotravisOfficial. And check Theo out, a lovely, lovely, multi-talented guy who doesn't only go from prog rock to jazz to ambient and it does it does wonderful ambient music as you will find not only if you check out the happyflutist.com where Theo has written some beautiful beautiful tracks and we're going to end with one of these tracks called flow which and it's a 16 minute <laughs> we won't go into the process about that but it's a 60 minute so there's no looping on this Theo just did a 60 minute, and it's it, not just a 60 minute, but he wrote this 60 minute beautiful, beautiful meditation. 
which you can listen to completely free on thehappyflutist.com. Thank you again, Theo. Thank you. And let's catch up again soon. And um, I don't know about you, I could do with another coffee. Oh, another coffee. Brilliant. Thank you. That'd be great. Oh, that was really good. And many thanks once again to Theo and to you for listening this week. Keep sending in your comments to us at flutepodcasts at gmail.com or via our Talking Flutes Facebook page, as it's always lovely to hear from you. I am now off into the centre of London to meet the ultimate, well, probably the ultimate flute nerd. More on this in a future podcast. However, just having had a large breakfast with Theo, I'm already beginning to regret arranging to meet this person over lunch. Oh, especially as I struggle walking up hills. Oh, well. So we close with an excerpt of the beautiful 60-minute track on alto flute called Flow by Theo Travis, which you can listen to completely free on the happyflutist.com website. Wishing you a wonderfully and musically fulfilling week ahead, and may your octave jumps be extremely smooth, and your low C sing. Goodbye. Yep, definitely not going to have lunch. I can see the tube station in front, so... Oh, dear, 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 dear. I wonder if I should... I wonder if I should join the gym, get a bike, get a personal trainer, or just not eat, or drink, or do podcasts, or play the flute, and just curl up on the sofa watching Netflix.
Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.